Good evening, everybody. Well, tomorrow morning we expect the Sue Gray report finally to be released. It's taken one heck of a long time, and that, of course, is because the Metropolitan Police got involved in this. And interestingly, that 13th of November party, yes, I know some of you are bored to death with Partygate, but this really is the final act, the final instalment, I promise you. And that 13th of November party, the odd thing is that somebody else at that party was fined, yet the Prime Minister wasn't fined for that. He was fined for walking into a birthday cake event that he didn't even know anything about. It all seems very odd. But I can tell you, Operation Get Boris is in full flight. Yes, Sadiq Khan, today Mayor of London, using his powers to demand of the Metropolitan Police why they find one person that was there and not the Prime Minister. The Liberal Democrats also appealing to police complaints. And now, out of the woodwork, anonymously, come people from inside Number 10 talking about the culture that existed there about, as they see it, the lack of leadership that came from the top, and many of them say that Boris Johnson himself indulged in those drinks parties. So this comes down to two things. Number one, did he mislead the House of Commons? And number two, this debate now really is about the reputation of the Prime Minister. So tonight's question, is the PM safe? Let me know your views. Farage at gbnews.uk. I have to say, my sense of it is, in decades gone by, the Prime Minister would not have been safe. Uh, but I suspect, in the modern world, with a slight lowering of public standards, I think that he will survive this. I think that he will be safe. I could be completely wrong. But what I will tell you is, across the other news channels tonight, on television and on radio, it is wall to wall. It's open season on Johnson. And what I want to do here at GB News is to redress that. I've got somebody on tonight with me who is a stout defender of the Prime Minister, of his political role, and we're going to ask Peter Bone, the MP from Wellingborough, about the personal integrity of the Prime Minister, because that actually is a very, very important question. Peter, good evening. Good evening. You know, whatever comes out of all of this, over, and I guess this is the final instalment, one way or another, at least I, I think people at home very much hope that it is. Whatever comes out of this, and before I get on to the leader of your party and the Prime Minister of our country, let's face it, the culture in number 10, you know, one thinks of the particular incident of, you know, a suitcase, the clinking suitcase full of booze being brought in, karaoke parties going on way past midnight. I mean, all of this happening inside number 10 Downing Street at a time when millions were told you cannot go and visit your elderly or perhaps in some cases dying relatives. Whatever the outcome of this, this does take politics into the gutter, doesn't it? Well, I think the important thing is tomorrow's Sue Gray report, and we will know, hopefully, the answer to that question. Who was actually running 
Downing Street on a day-to-day basis to allow all these things to happen. I mean, the Prime Minister wasn't there. He's, he's doing his job of uh, going all over the country, fighting COVID. He doesn't run the day-to-day operations. Tomorrow we should find that out. And those people, if they're still employed, uh, need to go, if I would have thought. But the fish rots from the head down. This is all about leadership. I mean, when I led UKIP, I wasn't necessarily responsible for what every one of the 400 branches did in the country. And yet, if they broke the law or did things that were wrong, I had to pay a political price for it. You can't just say the Prime Minister can walk away from this if her report finds that the culture in Number 10 was... Is it Wine Fridays beginning? I mean, personally, of course, I'd rather enjoy them, but that's not the point. (laughs) He must bear responsibility for the culture there, surely. Up until now, I've refused to speculate on the Sue Gray report, so I'm not going to speculate for 24 hours. But the truth of the matter is... The Prime Minister wasn't at any of those uh, parties that you described. The Metropolitan Police spent half a million pounds, 12 detectives working for weeks and weeks, and decided that the events that occurred, he was not fined for, that they were actually work events. The only time he was fined was he walked into a room, someone surprised him with a a birthday cake in a Tupperware box. Which seemed the least egregious, potentially, of all of them. So if if he was fined for that... You can absolutely be sure that the other events must have been work events. Well, I'm not uh, too sure about the consistency of the Metropolitan mm. Police throughout all of this. I'm also surprised that he called Sue Gray in for a chat. Uh, that will lead some to suggest that he tried, uh, perhaps in some way, to subvert the process. But as you say, we'll find out tomorrow. But this is about his reputation. Do you believe Boris Johnson to be an honest man? Yes, I do. And I think. People in my constituency, I guess across the country, think about what the Prime Minister does. The Prime Minister should be chucked out of office if he doesn't do a good job with policy. Now, he, got, he, he did Brexit, and we've got to deal with the Northern Ireland Protocol. He's dealing yes, with that. and that, you're absolutely right. I asked you, is he a truthful man? Yeah. He told people in Northern Ireland there would not be a border in the Irish Sea when you and I both knew there would be. No, but he didn't, he didn't think the way the EU's reacted, they effectively created a... Border, what it's it's a you very I, small for you and I both knew what it meant. No, at the time. I, I, no, I, we did. I did, and you certainly did. Well, I, I I took the view that trade within the United Kingdom would not be affected. It has been. The Prime Minister is sorting that out, and he and he, you know, we got the first vaccine uh, in the world because we weren't in the EU, and he's no, dealing no, no, with the no, small no, no, boats. I, but I, that's no, no, those no, 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 are the no, no, issues no, no. that I you get, decided. I get all of that. Mm. They're all policy yeah. issues. What we're dealing with here is the honesty of the PM. Now, I know you were there. I know you've seen it before. Our audience saw it last night, but this is actually very, very key to what the Standards Committee are going to sit down and talk about. It was the events that took place on the 8th of December last year. Catherine West, Member of Parliament for Hornsey, and she asked this question at PMQs of the Prime Minister. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will the Prime Minister tell the House whether there was a party in Downing Street on the 13th of November? Minister. Mr Speaker, no, but I'm sure that in, in whatever happened, uh, the guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. OK, let's now see a photograph of what happened on the 13th of November. And there we are, there's the Prime Minister going into a big booze-up bash. It was a leaving-do for Lee Kane. And there are empty half a bottle of gin's gone already. The party's obviously in full flight. I put it to you, Peter Bone MP, 
that when he answered that question, in the light of that evidence, he misled the House of Commons? No, I don't think so. I mean, really? If you look at that photograph, I'm looking at it. You can see blurred the red box, which the Prime Minister carries when he's working. He walked down the corridor. <laughs> That's good cover. No, he walked down the corridor. He knew it was a leaving party. No, he walked down the corridor. Well, th th you could say it's a leaving party. It was a v work event when one senior employee was leaving, and I'm sure the Prime Minister said, well, thanks very much for all you've done, and by the way, so-and-so's taking over, and this is how we're going to, and we're all united, and walked out again. He wasn't there for the party. Now, that's not what I say, of course. It's what the Metropolitan Police say as well. And but therefore... You can see the evidence clearly in No, no, but he didn't believe that was a party. And he didn't believe it when he answered that question. So he didn't deliberately mislead Parliament. Right throughout his life and career, he's had a loose relationship with the truth. Of that, there's no doubt. The question is, did he mislead Parliament? Deliberately. Deliberately. Yeah. And I understand that's the bar that has yeah. that, that he's that those that are yeah. fighting Operation Get Boris, yeah. they have to clear that yeah. bar. So, in your view, is he safe? Oh, well, I, I think so. Uh, it's interesting. I'm very pleased to come to your programme and get, get a, a fair outing on this. If I was on the BBC now, the poison would be dripping from the interview. Well, I'd I, get two sentences yeah, out. And fair, they, I, no, I, 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 look, I, the reason I've got you is I see all the other channels yeah. doing this. Look, I don't think Boris Johnson has a good relationship with the truth. I think he did mislead the House of Commons. I genuinely do. But do you think he deliberately misled the House oh, I yes. don't. Yes. Yes. I don't. I think he's got, away, he's got away with not telling the truth in every job he's done for decades. I, I just don't believe he deliberately misled how I'm the privileges committee would you sign. trust Boris Johnson with your last fiver I would trust I trust Boris Johnson with the with the government of the country he's doing well he's, <laughs> he's dealing with he's dealt with covid brexit the economic and he's led the european response to the dreadful war in europe on the foreign policy side of things, there's no doubt he has shown leadership. But yeah. that's not what this is about. This is about his reputation, his truthfulness. And that, in the end, will decide whether this issue topples him as PM. I suspect that he's going to survive this just because he does. Uh, Peter, well, no, I, no. You know, and I, I, no, and look, you've come on. You've made the case for him. <laughs> uh, and it's right and proper that somebody should. As I say, we're trying as a news channel, well, however much my reservations about the Prime Minister may be lodged within me, we want to make sure there is a fair debate. We'll get the Sue Gray report tomorrow, and we'll see if Peter Bone has to eat his words. Peter, thank you <laughs> for joining thank me you. here on GB News. Now, of course, it was one heck of a shock, wasn't it, earlier on this year, when people realised their gas bills were going through the roof. We started off at £1,200 for the average household. That then went up to over £1,800 for the average household. It will, in the words of the off-gem, I apologise, chief executive, by the autumn of this year, he believes it's going to be in the region of £2,800 per household. And it, I mean, that is an absolutely stunning, and I think for many people, frightening figure. Frightening for those on low incomes, frightening for those on fixed incomes, and we saw an estimate earlier this week that up to 40% of the country by October could be in what's deemed to be fuel poverty. And that means the definition of fuel poverty is you're spending more than 10% of your disposable income on energy. Though I suspect for many millions it is going to be more than that. Well, Adam Scorer is Chief Executive of National Energy Action, a fuel poverty charity and he joins me now. Adam, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Um, I guess this announcement by Ofgem today isn't really a surprise to you. No, it, it's not a surprise. It's possibly a little worse than we thought it might have been. There's some of the most sober 
um, assessments. But as you rightly say, it's a continuum of price shocks that started in October last year are going to stretch, it looks like, into the winter um, and to January next year. And it's a problem of breadth and depth. It's brought many more people into, you're right, the definition of fuel poverty, having to spend 10% of their income. But you're absolutely right as well. It's the depth. It's the severity, the impact of this on people on the lowest incomes, but also in the least efficient homes, difficult and expensive to heat, who are going to have a horrific, the prospect of a horrific winter uh, coming up with not just financial hardship, but serious ill health, serious mental ill health. And we know that we lose 10,000 people every year directly because of the effects of a cold home. Is this time for people who can to go and buy a wood burner? I mean, what, you know, what, what in practical terms can people do? There's actually very little. So advice organisations like myself, we have lots of people phoning in looking for support and help, and there's little. There's, there's the top tips. There's a few hints you can do. Turn your thermostat down a degree. Get some reflective uh, yeah. material behind your radiator. Fill the gaps. Uh, talk to your supplier if you're in depth. But to be honest, when it's this scale, the cost of heating a home has doubled, more than doubled over an 18-month kind of period. People on fixed incomes, there's no way through it. Sadly, it means that the government have to step forward. They put it off, to be honest. We've had gestures rather than proportionate responses. This time, they need to do the basics, which is put money in the pockets of the people on the lowest incomes or take money directly off their bills. No loans, uh, no grants that are difficult to get hold of direct financial assistance to people who need it the most. And that, in your view, is the only way through this crisis with the winter coming up later in the year? That's the only urgent response. That's the urgent response, because it's horrific what's coming up. And, they, and it's, it, it fundamentally is a, an issue of enabling people to afford to keep their homes warm. Longer term, there are two things that need to happen. We, we had the regulator at the at parliament today we just need to sort out the principles of our regulatory system in the energy market. So it starts from the principle of protecting the interests of those people who are most vulnerable. And long term, the reason why this isn't such a challenge for other northern European countries, for Scandinavian country, is because our housing stock is so lousy. It takes It's more expensive to heat. They lose mm. heat faster than almost anywhere else in Europe. So we use more, we owe more, we pay more, we suffer more because our housing stock is so leaky. And that's the long-term way of insulating people from these volatile prices. Adam Scorer, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Well, some of your reactions to that debate, is the PM safe? One viewer says the report on Downing Street parties is released tomorrow. How about waiting for that? Well, no other news channel is. I can assure you there's an open season out there. David says if he wasn't fined again, he didn't break the rules. What is the issue here? The issue is did he mislead the House of Commons? That actually is rather more important in some ways. Another says he is safe. He was safe once they announced no more fines. And James says, time to move on. This is becoming boring. James, I do agree with you. I think many GB News viewers are beginning to find this very, very boring. But let me tell you something. This is the big last final instalment. I don't think after the next few days we're going to hear much more about it. Now, let's get back to the cost of living. The energy price cap likely to go up to two 
£2,800 for the average household by October of this year. And joining me to discuss the policy side of this and what can actually be done is Ed Burkett, Head of Energy and Climate at Onward. Welcome back to the programme, Ed. Uh, now, you know, we're paying one hell of a price for deciding that we won't produce our own gas and oil, that we will rely on renewables, that we will import 50% of our gas. I mean, some of this problem, uh, and not just this government, but successive British governments have left us as big net importers of fuel. Is that not a fair criticism? Well, I think it's uh, fair to look again at our uh, fossil fuel production policy in the light of the current crisis. Uh, the assumption in Europe, and particularly in Germany, has been that we can rely on imports of, of gas from, from Russia, for example, uh, and we've been increasing our dependence by building new pipelines. Uh, so I think it's right to look at that again. Clearly that geopolitical assumption was wrong. Uh, what the government said in the UK is that it wants to have a, a two-pronged strategy uh, to increase domestic energy production. The first one of those is to look at producing more oil and gas in the North Sea. Mm. It's a declining basin, um, so the, the production from the North Sea has been declining. It depends on the price a bit though, doesn't it? Because the higher the price yeah. goes, the more of it becomes accessible. Exactly, and there is a question, should we be prepared to pay a bit more so that we're getting more resilience and more of our own uh, domestic production? And then the second part of the government strategy is to produce more low carbon electricity uh, in the UK. Uh, things like wind, things like solar and things like nuclear. And the real benefits of those, particularly for wind and solar, is that the costs have come down in recent years. And mm. for all of those technologies... About, about time, many would say. Well, quite. And, uh, and for all three of those technologies, for wind, solar and for nuclear, the price of those technologies does not depend on the international price of oil and gas. So there's a good way there where we can insulate ourselves from that right. over time. So you agree with me, we've made some big strategic errors over, well it's 20 years plus, isn't it, that we've been on this course? I think as the continent of Europe, uh, certainly the decision that, that Europe as a whole has taken, because we have a European gas market, uh, the decision as a whole that we have taken to rely on, on large imports of Russian gas has been a mistake, we can see that now. Uh, even if those decisions were made with the best of intentions. And the question now is how do we get ourselves off that Russian gas as soon well, as possible? Well, we in the United Kingdom, and it's now Brexit Britain, and we're not part of an emerging European energy policy, have a massive gas field in the north of England. And I know you're very pro-wind. I'm more sceptical about wind, as you know. But the thing about wind is you need gas to back it up when the wind doesn't blow. What about onshore gas extraction? And how quickly, because some people tell me within a year to 18 months, we could producing, be producing large amounts of gas in this country. Well, I think that timeline sounds a bit optimistic, to be honest. Uh, we have had successive uh, sort of um, politicians uh, for, since 2010 that have been quite keen on the idea mm -hmm. of shale gas. If you think of George Osborne as Chancellor, Andrea Leadsom as Energy Secretary, they have been keen on the idea of promoting uh, onshore gas, shale gas. Mm. Um, but we've, we've seen issues. We've seen issues with uh, seismic activity, earth tremors. And so... As you do with all extractive industries. Well, the question is, is, that, is it at an acceptable level? Mm. Uh, and the government at the time took the view that they could not guarantee that there would but not be But if we don't do that, tremors. what can we do in the short term? Well, in the short term, you, well, your previous guest actually made a very good point. That in the immediate term, the only real thing that we can do is get money to the people who need it most to pay their bills this winter. Other small things we can do, people can look at how their boiler is set up and for free they can work out, mm. uh, turn down the temperature of the boiler so you still get the same amount of heat out, you have to put it on lower for longer and it's more efficient. Um, so you can get as much heat but with less gas. Well, um, 
But in the long term, well, yeah, really I, in the short it, term, it is incredibly no, tricky. No, OK. Ed Burkett, thank you for coming on and making those arguments. What a mess we're in with our energy policy. We really are. Now, an incident that took place in Dunkirk today that is worth reflecting on and worth thinking about. We always talk about the number of people crossing the English Channel. We don't talk so much anymore about what's going on in Calais, Dunkirk or elsewhere. Well, at the Grand Synth camp, there are around about 800 people, nearly all young men, waiting to cross the English Channel. And an incident in the last 48 hours saw two gangs of traffickers firing live rounds from pistols at each other. Um, and there are two Iraqis who had hoped to make the journey, both of whom had been wounded pretty seriously. So you can see things are getting pretty rough, pretty brutal on the other side of the channel. Um, yesterday, I predicted 250. That was absolutely right. We're through 9,000 for the year. Peter Bone was talking earlier uh, that saying the Prime Minister has solved the small boat problem. Well, I have to tell you, I don't think he's done anything of the kind. And unless Rwanda, unless that policy on Rwanda is put into practice pretty damn quickly, then I'm afraid uh, we are going to have a vast number of people coming and politically for a government that's promised us it's found the solution, that I think would be politically pretty disastrous for them. The Red Wall MPs are up in anger over this and on legal migration numbers too. We will see what happens, but clearly things getting pretty unpleasant between the gangs, live rounds being fired, two men seriously injured. Now, what the Farage moment. All police officers, yes, all police officers, will have to undergo mandatory lessons on black history and should feel comfortable being labelled as woke. Yes, the police race action plan is to be put into action and it's to teach people about black history, to teach them about black communities in their area and to address the disproportionate use of force on black people. So what do we think, what do we make of all of that? Well, I think in many ways the police are being bullied into this. They think that by doing this, criticisms of what they do will end. They are wrong. They are wrong. And I'll tell you why they're wrong. One of the primary aims of the Black Lives Matter movement is to defund the police. So whatever the police try and do, whatever demonstrations they make, will not satisfy many of their fiercest critics who, frankly, want them to be closed down. And we have incidentally seen American cities uh, where the police forces have been defunded and homicide rates risen over the course of the last 18 months by about 30% or so. So if they think it's going to stop the criticism, they're wrong. And if they basically back away from stop and search, if they back away from the whole problem of knife crime, will they, in doing all of this, actually be doing the black community a service. And I think what we'll see are increasing levels of crime and increasing levels of black on black crime. And most of the knife crime in London is black on black crime. Yes, there you are. I've said it, the truth, live on television. Everybody else runs away from it, but it is true. So I don't think the police moving in this direction is going to have a positive impact in any way at all. Now, very, very interestingly, let's have a look at what is happening in Sri Lanka. 
You may have seen news reports over the course of the last few weeks of riots in the streets, fatal riots, people killed, including one member of parliament. They had a problem, they ran out of fuel, but they've got an even bigger problem, and it's around food. Now, their prime minister, their, their president, was elected on a platform of going 100%, 100% organic with their food production. And of course, rice being the single most important crop. As a direct result of going organic, rice yields have been down by over 30%. Food price inflation in Sri Lanka is running at 50% per year. The country is in deep, deep crisis. And we spoke a bit earlier to Ashwin Hemagathmana, sorry, very difficult names to pronounce, and he is a daily FT journalist in Sri Lanka. And this is what he had to say about the situation there. With the farmers not having necessary fertilizer, including the pesticides and weedicides, the crop cultivation has missed several seasons. This has become a serious issue, whereas production has gone down. There are serious shortage of food, specifically rice and vegetables in the market. Now with the full shortage in the country, there are long queues and people are really suffering specifically for not having enough food as well as electricity. Unless the government takes a serious decision to rectify these, there will be no easy exit for Sri Lanka in the days to come. You see, the truth of it is, if you don't use chemical fertilizers, if you don't use some degree of pesticides, your yield completely and utterly collapses. So the organic farm dream that people voted for and believe this was a wonderful, brave new world has been a complete and utter disaster in Sri Lanka. So are there lessons for us in this country? Well, now we've left the European Union, we've left the common agricultural policy. It's up to us what we do, how we manage our farmland, how we think about the issue of food security. But here's where the Prime Minister is. Here he was speaking at the last Conservative conference about agriculture. We are going to rewild parts of the country and consecrate a total of 30% to nature. We're planting tens of millions of trees. Otters are returning to rivers from which they've been absent for decades. Beavers that have not been seen on some rivers since Tudor times, massacred for their pelts and now back. And if that isn't conservatism, my friends, I don't know what is. Build back beaver, I say. What the hell is he on about? We're going to rewild 30% of our farmland. Just let it go into rural desolation. And I've no doubt there'll be some beavers and there'll be a few more butterflies and maybe a few more songbirds. Maybe those things will all come true. But we are willfully, willfully deciding, as we've done with energy, that will make sure the country is even more dependent on food imports than it was as members of the European Union. And these are the bonkers ideas that have come out of the Richmond Greens, deeply embedded within the Conservative Party. The Goldsmiths carry, of course, also. The ideas are crazy. One piece of good news, though. We are looking at a new genetically altered tomato. 
something we wouldn't have been allowed to produce as members of the European Union, but now, outside of their frameworks, we would be, and it would be incredibly high in vitamin D. And one thing we've learned during the pandemic is the importance of vitamin D. So please, Mr Johnson, get rid of the Richmond Greens. Let's get back. Let's get back to using farmland in this country productively. Let's try and produce as much of our own food as we possibly can. Because as we've seen and we've learnt through the invasion of Ukraine, you never know what is around the corner. One or two more of your reactions to the Operation Get Boris campaign, which is out there, and you know, get really foaming away across many of the other media channels. One viewer says, we are in trouble if Boris stays. Well, that's a separate debate, um, I suspect. I suspect that if he does stay, the next general election may be very difficult for them. Von says, we'll be in trouble if Boris goes. He is a great PM. There is no one else that comes near. I suspect, actually, that's Peter Bone who sent that in, but never mind. Someone on Twitter says, no, because our backbenchers are weak robots determined to hit the iceberg with Boris. Another viewer says, nobody in government is in trouble. We live in the most lawless time in history and it gets worse by the minute. Well, I think whatever happens tomorrow with the Sue Gray report, the one thing I'm absolutely certain of is the reputation of politics and politicians sinks yet further. It's that time of the day. It's time for Talking Pines. Absolutely. I am joined by Dr. Madsen Piri from the Adam Smith Institute. Madsen, welcome Cheers. to the programme. Cheers to you. Now, 1977, the Adam Smith Institute is set up. Yes. And with good reason. Indeed. Uh, you know, I think top rate income tax in this country, income tax yes. was 83%. 98 that was unearned, I think, wasn't it? If, if, if you were foolish enough to invest in Britain's future productivity, yes. they slapped a 15% surcharge on you. So up to 98%. Uh, from 83 to 98. Yeah. And many aspects of our national economic life and social life were under the control of government. Yes, indeed. The government ran the railways. It, it produced the steel, the coal, the ships, the planes, the buses, the trucks. It, it ran it, almost the, everything. Even the travel industry, I think, <clears throat> was part nationalised. It I was mean, indeed. Yeah, it was quite extraordinary. For those that don't know, who was Adam Smith and why, why is he the man you've named your institute afterward? Oh. Well, he, he was, of course, the, the great Scottish economist who in 1776 published what was the seminal book that fundamentally invented modern economics. Yep. It was called The Wealth of Nations. And in it, he said that you don't get rich by, um, you know, selling more than you buy from abroad and storing gold under the king's throne. You get rich by increasing the productivity, the goods and services you produce. That's the wealth of nations, the productive power of its peoples. That was it. And so the question then is what the right model is by which we do this. And you clearly believe in free, free economy and a free society. So we should be reasonably free to go out and do what we like. But there have to be some rules, don't there, to, to protect others from yes. greed, yeah. bad behaviour. So where, how do you draw, as a free marketeer, how do you draw the line, Madsen? Well, the this? line is between laissez-faire, which means you don't do anything, you just let it rip, and being pro-free market, which means you put the rules in place, that means that any competition is going to be fair, that the uh, people who are presently there can't exclude new entrants to the market by, you know, restrictive practices. So you know, it has to be maintained by regulation and legislation. But 
preferably with a very light touch, because if you yeah. over-regulate it, you're trying to micromanage businesses <clears throat> that really should make the decisions themselves. You, you can't have government trying to second-guess what they should be doing. And actually, Brexit was part of this, wasn't it? Brexit was part <clears throat> of this. Actually, us having the ability to reduce legislation, to repeal legislation, which within the European framework was pretty much impossible Oh yes, the control, for us to do. control from Brussels was increasing year by year. We were under a mountain of detailed regulation. For example, um, we, we in Britain would like to do what we call result-driven regulation. You know, you shall not emit a certain amount of noxious gases. In Europe, they want to tell you how to do it. They want to describe the exact technology you have to use in order to do that. That's process-driven regulation. Now we're out. Now Brexit has happened. We can get back to result-driven regulation and leave it to inventiveness and ingenuity to find different ways of achieving the de desired objectives. So here we are. Brexit has happened. It's not perfect. There are things like Northern Ireland that need to be re-looked at. But are we taking advantage of that? Not yet, but I'm hoping we will. And it looks increasingly as though we're going to. The, the signs coming from uh, Whitehall and from uh, Parliament, from Westminster, are that you know, we're, we're now beginning, for example, um, genetically edited foods. I just mentioned the, the super tomato with yeah, lots of vitamin yeah. D. In. We, we couldn't have done that in the European Union, you see, because they, they have a sort of... Uh, they're almost fanatical in their opposition to this. Uh, they, they treat ge genetically edited foods the same as genetically modified foods. The difference is, of course, with, with genetically edited doesn't mean you're bringing in outside genes from other organisms. You're just editing within the gene. And we can now do things like that that we couldn't do before. So you think as time goes by, the British government, Whitehall, are going to start to seize these opportunities? I mean, you genuinely think they see the opportunity? Well, we're going to do our best to draw their attention to those opportunities. That's, after all, what we do. Yeah. But when it comes to tax, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, when you look at this country, when you look at tax, NIC, uh, you look at the increase in NIC, the increase in dividends for people mm -hmm. running limited companies that's just come in, uh, corporation tax going up 30%. Mm. I mean, quite extraordinary. And then, what about you know, the tax on a pint, the tax on a packet of cigarettes, the tax on filling up the car. I mean, yeah. compared to other countries, Madsen, how heavily taxed are we? Too much is the answer. And you may be interested to know that the tax on your, on your pint, or on indeed my wine, is a tax on a tax because they put the duty on mm. and then they charge VAT on the total amount. So you're paying VAT on a duty, a tax upon a tax. Yeah. Yeah. It really is shocking. That's, I mean, and that's the, same, that's the same with petrol and diesel too, It is it? indeed, yes. Yeah. And, and that's something that should be stopped. Now, it, it, we went down from that top 98, 83% plus yeah. 15. We went down eventually under Nigel Lawson to 40% uh, top rate. And the Treasury made a lot more money from that 40%. Now, yeah, you see, this is the laugh curve that people it talk is, about. Yeah, yeah. How does that, I mean, explain to folks at home, how, when you cut taxes on those that earn the most money, yeah. does the exchequer get greater income? How does that work? Well, there's two factors there. One is that the lower the taxes, the less worthwhile it is for you to do tax avoidance, tax sheltering, Cayman Islands companies, things like that. It, it, you might as well just pay the tax because it's, it's, that's quite an expensive process employing those accountants to do that kind of work. Two, the main thing though, is the economy grows. And, and therefore the total amount of production that is being taxed 
increases. So you, although it's a lower rate, it's a broader base. So you're taking in more money. And that's those two reasons are why the Laffer curve works and why you can lower rates and secure more tax revenue for the Treasury. So right at the moment, as I understand it, the tax burden is the highest it's been since Clement Attlee yeah, right. was in power yeah. 71, 72 mm -hmm. years ago. Yeah. Uh, there's no prospect of Labour actually, I don't think, cutting taxes. Yeah, although and this, is, this is under a Tory government that that well, level well, has been reached. This is my question yeah, yeah. to you. Yeah. I mean, as I understood it, historically, the Adam Smith Institute had great influence over Republican thinking in America and Conservative thinking in this country, and you were very much on that. I mean, you're not politically aligned directly, but you've had perhaps more influence in those areas. Well, we beat the drum for free enterprise and free yeah. peoples, yeah. Daily. So, so what, what influence do you think you have today with this current Conservative Party? Well, we can point out that countries that do go down the road of lowering taxes and regulation invariably have economic growth. And that economic growth is what makes everybody richer. Well, let's see some examples. Heavens, uh, I can think uh, Hong Kong in its heyday, Singapore in its heyday, South Korea, and then the, the so-called secondary tigers, Malaysia. It, it just works. The fact is, these things come and go in cycles, and at the moment we're in a cycle where people are looking at regulation and high taxes. But the examples from abroad of countries that do it differently will show us that lower taxes and lighter regulation will achieve the economic okay. growth that makes us all wealthier. Now, you also believe in your founding aims in a free society. Yes, indeed. And it feels to me like virtually every mm. human activity is now either already regulated by government or there is some proposal mm. to regulate it in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, and I, I just mm. don't hear, I don't hear across the road here, across the river here, in mm. Westminster, mm. I just don't hear those voices for cutting the size of the state. It feels to me, and obviously the pandemic being a very extreme example, but it feels that the state gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It does, and um, if the Department of Health is not too far from us now, and they want to regulate um, what you eat, how much salt, how much sugar, they want to regulate how much fat you eat, how many calories but you take. But it's for our own good. Uh, yeah, that's what they say. They say that, but how do they know what's for our own good? <laughs> I think there are some decisions better made by people individually, that's all. Uh, yeah, give them information about you know, what certain foods have consequences for them, yes, and then let them make their decision in the light of that knowledge. That's fine. That's called a free society. Well, I would agree with that 100%. I can't stand being told what to do. I never could. Um, all me, me neither. No, all through my life. But the point I'm making to you is that narrative... I mean, Reagan was perhaps the best example of this. He was terrific. What was yeah. it, the worst eight words in the English language? I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and Roddy was... And did it with humour mm. and did it beautifully. Is there anything in British politics that makes you think we can reverse this tide towards big government? The answer is, of course, I don't know, because, you know, a week is a long time in politics. Um, there are some people we talk to in Parliament who we think have the right instincts. Heaven knows whether they'll emerge, you know, in high cabinet positions in the future, but the hope is that they will. The point is about free markets and free choices is that they work. They produce the results. Not only is, is it morally and ethically superior to let people be free to be themselves, it's also more efficient. It, it delivers the goods. It produces the wealth. So why do younger <clears throat> generations, and we sort of goes in a cycle, mm. 
What, what is it about socialism that is so appealing to young people? Um, my guess is probably, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, by any means, yeah. but it's probably that you look at the world with all its imperfections and you think, I could do better than that. I could remake the world mm -hmm. to be better and cleaner and nicer. Mm -hmm. As you get a little bit older, you realise that it ain't quite that simple, that there are unintended consequences. And every time socialism has been tried, it's ended in abject failure. And then the left has all said, well, that wasn't real socialism. <laughs> but they we say, need more of it. <laughs> they yeah. say that every time. Yeah. This time it's going to be different. Yeah. And it never is. It's always the same. And a final thought on capitalism. This capitalism has got this, you know, terrible name. Capitalism mm. is, is so unfair. Uh, we need, you know, <clears throat> I don't think we're living in capitalism. I think we're living in corporatism. I feel we're <clears throat> living in an age where big firms, big banks, big government, altogether kind of make life very difficult for everybody else. Well, you know, we have some degree of capitalism. Uh, fundamentally, capitalism means that instead of consuming, you actually invest for future reward. That's basically what it means. You, you use your wealth as capital to produce future, more future wealth. Adam Smith uh, thought that a little bit went him a long way. He said all that's needed to take you know, a country from the depths of poverty to, to the, the heights of affluence, peace, easy taxes and a tolerable administration of justice. Not even a good one, just a tolerable one. And I think he got it absolutely right. No war, right? Yeah. Low taxes mm -hmm. and a reasonably good protection of property rights and things like that. And yes, you, you, don't, so, you don't need to be totally capitalist. So the you principles of <clears throat> 1776 from that book that he wrote are alive and well in Madison Perry. Well, they're alive and well in the world today, and it, they, those principles have lifted more people out of abject misery, starvation, uh, and subsistence in, in the last um, 30 years than any time anything that's ever been done before in human history. More people are alive today who would have been dead had those principles not been applied. Globalization, the spread of free markets, the entry of the vast labor forces of China and India onto the global markets have basically reduced poverty to a fraction of what it was. Abject poverty is, is now a tiny fraction of what it was. So, yes, it works. Well, you are a true evangelist for the cause, and thank you for joining me on Talking Bites. Thank you. Yes, to you. Right, we've got a two and a half minutes left on the programme. It is time for Barrage the Farage. I've no idea what you've sent me today. Here goes. One viewer asks, has liberalism gone too far? Well, I think, well, I would answer that by saying that what is going on today in the name of liberalism is actually profoundly illiberal and totally intolerant. Madsen, in a sense, what you're standing for is classical liberalism, isn't it? Yes, unfortunately, the Americans have corrupted the word, and, and now it means left-wing socialism in, in America. We haven't quite lost the word yet in, in, in Europe. So, but yes, classical liberalism. Classic, yeah. Classical liberalism, good. Modern-day liberalism wants to regulate and ban absolutely everything. Mick asks... Is Sadiq Khan getting too big for his boots? Well, of course, he's intervened today, mm. hasn't he, over the, um, over the, uh, the row that you know, Boris wasn't fine for that event in November, whereas somebody else was. Um, I, a point about Khan, of course, is that he got relatively easily re-elected. I thought Sean Bailey did a good job against him. Um, do you know what? 
truth in life, I think, is anybody that's in the top job for too long, they always get a bit too big for their boots, don't they? They should have a sell-by date stamped on their, <laughs> on their arm. And after 10 years, everybody should quit. You know. Well, yes, that would have worked for many prime ministers who went on for a little I bit. I can think of um, Margaret Thatcher maybe went on a year a or two too, too long. long. Tony Blair went on for a year or two too long. Putin has gone on for incredibly too long. And Xi Jinping in China, the same. That date stamp, sell-by date. Date on the arm. Well, you see now, the free marketeer now wants to regulate human beings. He wants to put sell-by dates on them. Lance asks, should we be getting domestic farms to increase food production during the Ukraine conflict? Lance, I think it's bigger than that. I think this 30% of the British country to be rewilded because a few rich people in Richmond think it's a great idea and Boris had this burst of enthusiasm, I think it is bonkers. Why do the left appear to be frightened of Trump being on Twitter again, asked Pete, because he can bypass CNN, he can bypass mainstream media, he can speak directly to tens of millions of people. And as a friend and supporter of the president, I have to say he was entertaining on Twitter, although even as one of his most ardent, fervent supporters, I did sometimes look at the first tweet of the day ever so slightly through our fingers. But Elon Musk is turning into a hero for free speech and a hero, actually, for classical thinking, which accepts we've all got different points of view.